Let's turn in our study to Romans chapter 9 and get to pick up where I left you hanging a few weeks ago. And Paul here in Romans chapter 9 is diving into the deep end and the theological discussions. And I love how Paul is working through this text. And I was struck again as I returned back to this study and I was just wrestling through the text and reading it again and reminding myself of what Paul was saying that I was reminded again of the greatness of God and the weakness and lowliness of man. Reminded of our own limitations. And I was reminded as I was reading through this text, there are few times in life as I grow and as we mature that we feel our own weaknesses and limitations. We kind of gain these, uh, because of life, we we gain these um, false assurances. You know, we're used to as parents having kids and telling our kids exactly what they are to do. And we have this sense of control. I told you when you could get up. I told you what you're going to eat. I told you what you're going to wear. I told you when you can go out and when you can come in. And I felt like I ordered life. I go to work. If I own my own business, I tell my employees what to do. And on and on it goes. I get this sense of security that I am directing all things and working all things. And, and you can go on for life for a long period of time thinking you have everything in control. See your bank account increasing and you can see a stable home and you have a car that works each day. And on and on it goes that you have this sense of total control. And then something happens and you recognize you don't have control. There's a limitation. All of a sudden, everything that you once understood is not working in the way you thought, and you recognize your weakness and your own limitation. That happens in the physical world, but then there's also certain doctrines where God reminds us as he presents these doctrines, I am God and you're not. There are certain doctrines that God, that God gives as he reveals in his word that we come up to and we recognize, wow, we are little in comparison to God. We are small. And this is Romans chapter 9. This is the discussion that Paul brings out here. He just reminds us of the greatness of God and his purposes and the lowliness of man. And it gets uneasy at times when we run into those experiences because we have a difficult time reconciling them. There are antinomies, as described in the scriptures. Antinomies are apparent contradictions. There are when two laws or two principles operate which seem to be in contradiction to each other. That's the struggle of Romans chapter 9 here. How is it that God is sovereign and in control of all things, and yet man is responsible? How can these two doctrines operate side by side? They seem to be in contradiction with each other, and yet these are the things that God lays out for us. How do we reconcile these doctrines? And this is where Paul takes us right into, and again, I would have felt more comfortable as a preacher if Paul had just skipped over it, because then I didn't have to explain it. But he doesn't. He runs right into the middle of this discussion, and I am just overwhelmed by 
how Paul argues it and what he says and how it shapes us as we head through it. And so this is what I want to share with you as we work through this marvelous passage. There are, again, the words that Moses said in Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. There are questions we have that we will never get the answer to because God himself does not give them. Maybe in eternity he would give them if we were in the right frame of mind to receive them. Maybe we will get answers as we engage more directly with Christ. But this side of glory, the things that are hidden are the things that belong to God. Then there are the things revealed. And even the things revealed are enough of a mystery for us that cause us to, to um, struggle and cause our minds to become a pretzel. And this is exactly where we are in Romans 9. Paul, as I said through Romans, is defending the gospel, the gospel of God, the very gospel that had been rejected by the Jews, the very gospel who, that the Jews rejecting their own Messiah is now spreading through the world. Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Jews are seeing the, the spreading of the gospel and people are being saved and calling upon Christ as their Messiah. And Paul is just being taken from town to town, ministering the gospel, and it is spreading rapidly. But with that spreading of the gospel, questions are raised. And Paul, as I said here in Romans chapter 9, answers three questions. First question came up in verse 1, comes off of the heels of chapter 8. And the first question, it comes in regards to God's preserving work. Chapter 8 just said that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Chapter 8 told us that God preserves and protects his people and holds them through the end. No trials, no difficulties, no heavenly things or earthly things. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. A marvelous truth. And then chapter 9, verse 1, well then what about the Jews? Oh, so God's so kind to us, but did he forget the Jews? Did he turn away from them? Did he abandon them so he has a greater love for us, but he doesn't love them? Is that what's happening here? And Paul, so he has to answer that objection, and he does that in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Saying, no, God's promises haven't failed. For... They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. No, he says God has the right to choose. And he chooses not the whole nation, but he chooses particular individuals from the Jews, for not all Israel are Israel. God has the sovereign right to choose those whom he will save. Well, now that just opens up all kinds of questions, the biggest of which is this, how is God fair? Two fairness questions come out in chapter 9. How is, he, how is it fair that he can save one and not another? And then how is it that he can fairly judge one who he hasn't chosen? How is God fair? These are the questions that Paul addresses in this chapter. 
And then, of course, chapter 10, then, he asks, all right, if God is a sovereign and he chooses, then how is anyone saved? We will answer that when we get to chapter 10. These are profoundly rich questions. These are profoundly difficult questions for us to ask. Because, again, it is moving right into the marvelous mysteries of God's operation. God has a purpose, not only in accomplishing this work, but also revealing this work here in Romans chapter 9 through 11. And as I said, I can understand the difficulties that Paul lays out because in the, the difficulty he would have in the human mind because these are difficult doctrines to understand. Difficult for our minds to wrap around, and in the midst of wrapping our minds around these particular things, we get fearful, and we begin to question God and his character, and we begin to bring God into our courts, our human courts, and we want to judge God. Like, I know you've had discussions like this with people in regards to talking about God's work, his activities, his choosing, his condemning of sinners, etc. And the very questions that come up about fairness, how can God do this, how can he allow? I want you to understand that those are the very questions that Paul anticipates, right? Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Again, this is the question about God's fairness. If he chose If he's electing, is he unfair because he chose some and not others? He didn't choose everybody? Paul anticipates the very question. Verse 19, the next question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? If he chose one and not somebody else, and the person he didn't choose, how can he justly condemn him? How can he find fault in him? God never chose him. These are the questions that fill our mind, cause us wonder. And these are the questions that actually expose our smallness. They expose us that we're not God, that we're not in control, that he is the sovereign one. He's moving and directing according to his purpose. And what I want you to see is exactly how God answers these questions. Because we do believe that the Bible is God's revealed word and that Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote and he wrote God's very word. God's message. This is, again, God's answer to those very questions at hand and significant that we set it up this way because in our own hearts we are tempted to step up and speak for God we are tempted to slip our own reasoning in there we are tempted to try to get God off the hook we are tempted to change the message to change the to soften the edge of the truth to do something to make God free from any kind of charge in fact I Experienced it just between services. Between services, somebody came up to me and asked me about uh, about uh, Pharaoh. Going back to verses fourteen through eighteen, about the scripture saying Pharaoh hardened 
you know, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the question was, well, how did God do this? How did God harden his heart? And I felt the, the temptation in my own speech to say, well, well, God revealed a hardened heart in Pharaoh. I was like, well, no, actually the, the edge of the text is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Both were stated in the text. But there's a temptation in our hearts to try to, to take off the edge to do something to soften the scriptures, to do something to, to take away the offense of what God has revealed. And there are certain times God plainly states that we cannot do that. That is this text before us. Come to then the third question asked, verse 19. We're going to unpack this morning, and that question is regards to then Paul says, why does he still find fault? Who will resist his will? I want you to see particularly as we head into this, how Paul answers the question, what Paul turns to, and then think carefully exactly what Paul is saying so we bring our minds under it. I've been reading uh, this week a a couple of books. I I read a book um, called The Obscurity of Scripture, And it is a book written by a former evangelical who's turned to Catholic, and he has said the Bible is not plain. The Bible cannot be understood through a clear reading. There's so many interpretations out there. There's no way we can understand what God's really saying. So we need the church, and we need the Catholic church to tell us what it means. I read another book entitled The Bible Made Impossible. And this book, again, teaching the similar idea, written by a former evangelical who has turned Catholic, says, yeah, you evangelicals believe that the Bible is authoritative. You believe that the Bible is uh, God's word, but we can't understand it without the church. You need to come back to Mother Church, to the Catholic Church. In both cases, the emphasis is the Bible wasn't plain. It wasn't understandable. You can't trust it, but we will tell you what it means. Just come back. And I would say fundamentally, the reason why you struggle with the Bible is because you do not come under what it says. And the proof of that is right here in Romans 9. When God gives an answer to a question that we're asking and we don't like it, you see exactly where the heart's temptation is. I don't want that answer. I want a different answer. Kind of like children who've asked their kids or asked their parents for more dessert and mom and dad say no and the heart that comes out. You didn't mean that, dad. You, you meant yes, right? You know, we try to change the answer. That's what happens in the human heart. Let me show you here as that works out here in Romans 9. This is really critical, not only that we learn what God's answer is to these penetrating questions, but we also learn how to reason and think like the apostle did. So we learn to train our own minds to think this way. Now here was the outline as we work through this. The outline is the problem in verse 19. And the problem is how can man be held liable if God is electing? That's the problem. The answer is verse 20. This is, again, here's the answer to your question and my question about God's justice in holding the sinner accountable. Who are you, O man, who answers that back to God? Okay. 
Um, The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? The answer is, God is God. That's the answer. And that just causes the heart of man no end of difficulty. What, God, you're not going to give an answer to my penetrating question? You're not going to give an answer to this most difficult problem? Yes, he does give it an answer, and the answer is, I'm God. I am God. I am the creator. I am the one who moves and orchestrates all things. This is the answer. To which then, Paul, from verse 21 through verse 29, gives three proofs or three demonstrations to this answer. And we'll look at the first this morning, because that's how far I could get in my study. So verse 1, the proof here is this reminder of God, who God is, and what he has done. When I think about it, back in verse 15, he starts this when he reminds us of his works. For he says in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. God says, I am God and I operate as I please. I do what I wish to do, I accomplish my good purposes, I magnify my name, and I may even use you to do it. I may, just as I used Pharaoh and raised Pharaoh up to magnify my name, I will be glorified. That's what he says. Again, the heart struggles, we struggle with this. Struggle with it for a few reasons, sometimes just because we don't know what God says in his word, and so we struggle with this idea. Or we struggle with this idea because we know what it says, we just can't wrap our arms around it, and we don't, we're not humble before the scriptures, we, we stand over it. Or, thirdly, we struggle with it because we are just in rebellion, don't want to hear that message. I want you to see how Paul takes us through this. Because it is incredibly marvelous, and you wouldn't catch it if you just simply read the verse there, unless you had been regularly reading through the scriptures, and in particularly regularly reading through the prophets, and even more particularly ready, readily reading through Isaiah. If you were reading Isaiah the prophet regularly, you would begin to see the wisdom and the heart of the Apostle Paul as he, bring, as he argues here. As Paul argues, he brings the first proof, and the first proof is this. God is just in all of his dealings. First, the answer to this marvelous, profoundly rich theological question is God and his ways are unassailable. He, he does perfectly. He is just in all of his activities. That's verse 21. Notice verse 21. Does not the potter 
have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Does not God, the sovereign one, the creator, the creator of the heavens and the earth, have the right to operate according to his good pleasure? That is the question that Paul brings out. Now, here's what I want you to see. This isn't Paul saying, I need a really good illustration. Let me find an illustration that I can really kind of help the, my readers understand. This isn't Paul coming up with a creative way to answer the problem or to work a situation with his logic. This is Paul understanding the testimony of the Old Testament prophets, grabbing the prophets' reasoning, and then using that reasoning to answer the question. You look at verse 21, and I'm pretty confident that verse 21 is not formatted in your Bible the same way as verses 25 and 26, or 27 and verse 29. You recognize that typically in our Bible translations today, when there is a direct reference to an Old Testament text, they format it in such a way that you can plainly see it. Just like, again, verse 25 and 26, a direct connection for Hosea. And then verse 27, 28, and 29, directly quoted through Isaiah the prophet. You see it formatted there. But you look at verse 21, and there's no such reference. What you see in verse 21 is Paul taking an Old Testament theme and now thinking and answering the question through that line of thinking. Let me show you this. Let's turn over to the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 28. And I want you to see this this marvelous truth. Isaiah chapter 28 through 31 is significant because in Isaiah 28 through verse 31, or chapter 31, what you have is Isaiah the prophet giving a series of woes to Israel because of their rebellion. He's telling Israel, judgment's coming, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to punish the wicked, they're going to be... the." This judgment is coming, so Judah is warned, and Jerusalem is warned, and all the inhabitants of Israel are warned of the coming judgment that is going to come upon them. A series of woes that are made. Verse, chapter 29 and verse 1, Woe, O Ariel. There's a series of woes that are made to warn them about this judgment. Now pick up in verse 15 of chapter 29. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees us? Who knows us? He's giving, again, judgment here in verse 15 to those who go about operating in wickedness, thinking they're getting away with it thinking that no one's going to discover their wickedness, that they could operate any way they wants, and that they even think they're hiding from God. Woe to them, he says. Woe to you who hide your plans deeply. You cover them, cover your tracks. Now here's the key, verse 16. You turn things around. That is, you turn things upside down. What? Notice, 
Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me? Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. The idea here is Israel is being rebuked for their rebellion because they are saying God is not God, they are. That they can turn things upside down, that they can give God knowledge, they can give God instruction, they can tell God what's right and he has no place. God uses this Analogy, this terminology to expose the wickedness in the heart of the people. They, the created thing, acts as if it's greater than the creator. The clay is now, notice, standing over its maker, saying, you didn't make me. The clay, standing over its maker, he has no understanding. I mean, think about that very object that has been created now pointing back to its creator, its designer, and saying, you have no understanding. You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the creator. It's that analogy that Paul takes. It's that illustration that that God gave to Israel that Paul grabs and now says, let's think about this more. Paul taking this line of reasoning and exposing creation and Creator, And that's what he starts to draw upon. So that it's not a direct quote as a principle, but it is now a line of thought. He shows us how we guard our thinking to keep our thinking within the scriptural bounds. And then he goes on through the rest of Isaiah the prophet. The prophet goes on and says the wicked are going to be judged. They're going to be cut off. Their end is going to come. But the righteous are going to be delivered. The righteous are going to be blessed. They're going to be restored. Verse 20 speaks of the wicked being cut off. For the ruthless will come to an end and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. I'm going to bring judgment, and it's going to happen. They think they're getting away with everything, but they're going to recognize that they cannot get away with this. I'm going to judge, and I'm going to demonstrate that I am God, and they are under accountability to me. The the righteous are going to be restored and renewed. That is the context. That is the verse that Paul is drawing from. Now turn back to Romans chapter 9. So now Paul takes this line of reasoning of creator-creature, creator and the creation, and he shows from God's reasoning that man, exalting himself above God, is doing evil. And Paul grabs onto that and says, okay, now it's this same line of reasoning that there is a creator and a creation, and he picks up on that terminology here in verse 20 and 21 The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The question is simply this, does God not have the right to be God? Just because he created you, does he now, has he given up his right to be God Does he no longer have authority? Does he no longer have understanding? Does he no longer have power? The answer is emphatically no. Obviously no. 
And Paul is using this line of reasoning to remind the audience, when you come up to those kinds of difficult questions, you must be reminded that you are the creation, and he is the creator. He is the creator, and he is just in all of his ways. That's right, verse 21 again. Doesn't the potter have a right over the clay? Doesn't God, as creator, have the right to do what he wills? Doesn't he have the right to accomplish his good purposes and, and do what he desires? Even if what he desires is simply to magnify his name. I mean, that's exactly what he said in verse 17, right? Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. This is what I wish to do. This is what I wish to accomplish, to magnify my name and to accomplish my good purposes. God has the right to do those very things. He's the sovereign one, moving and directing Accomplishing his good purposes, able to do, deal justly, and to operate justly among his people. So even if we would look back and say, how can God judge them? Because he is God, orchestrating and accomplishing his good purposes. And he is just as the creator well, does this make God unjust in his activities? Absolutely not, because he is God, and he operates justly, and he accomplishes his perfect purposes. The question isn't, is God unjust for choosing some and not others and then condemning some? The question is, which one of us can stand as God's judge? That's the question. Which one of us knows enough has been around long enough, has enough power to judge God. He's just as the creator and moves. But we, we do struggle with this. I want to show you this. Turn over to Job chapter 38, because we certainly are not the first. Turn over to our scripture reading this morning. You remember the book of Job. Job begins with, Satan entering into God's court seeking to, to um, sift somebody and he wanted to sift Job. And so God turns Job over to Satan and Satan destroys him. He takes away his family, kills his kids. He takes away his riches, destroys his possessions and then takes away his health. Finally leaving Job with a contentious wife and a bunch of poor counselors. And so for 37 chapters, there is this constant dialogue back and forth between Job and his counselors and all that. They're trying to question God and his dealings and question Job. Finally, chapter 39 comes and God gives an answer. From chapter 39, or 38, 39, 40, and 41, four chapters, God answers Job and just notice the kind of themes that come out here. Job 38, 
Verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And I don't know about you, but this is not the conversation I would want with God. You know, all right, you know everything, Mr. Know-it-all. You tell me what's going on. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When I was creating everything, where were you at? You tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? When we determined how big this world would be, did you tell me its size? Too big or too small? Did you tell me the mass of the world, the mass of its various parts? Did you tell me how much water to put in there and how much earth to put in there and how much oxygen we produce and how to preserve all of that? Did you help create the ecosystem that keeps this world operating? Did you stretch out its line? Did you hang it on nothing? Did you even determine where it would fit within its solar system? Did you determine how it would operate around the sun and what order? It would operate? Did you determine its direction? Did you determine how day and night would come? And did you determine its seasons? Where were you, Job? For four whole chapters, he goes on. Four whole chapters, he lays out this very thing. You are nothing, Job. You are insignificant. You have no wisdom, no understanding, no power, no knowledge. Anything you do have, I gave it to you. You have clothes? Thank me, because I gave it to you, God says. You have food, you have shelter, you have safety, you have security. You have anything comes from the hand of God. The very life we have comes from God. That's what God reminds Job of in these chapters. He reminds Job of his mighty power and what he has accomplished. And then he takes a break right in the middle, chapter 40. This is the first half of his rebuke. Chapter 40 says, uh, Then the Lord said to Job, Here's the, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will the man who judged me, who judged my ways and judged my purposes, come and contend with me? Let him, him who reproves God answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, it's probably the most brilliant thing he's ever said in the whole book. I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? You're right, Job. Finally, you get it. You have no knowledge. I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. I can't, Mar- I can't rival you, God. I can't rival your wisdom. I can't rival your power. I don't know. I wasn't there. You never consulted me. And then part two of the rebuke comes from verse 6 all the way through chapter 41. I love verse 15. Behold now, the behemoth, which I made as well as you. It's like this large animal right here. I made this huge animal. Imagine an elephant, something like that, a behemoth, this large creature, 
Some have thought maybe a dinosaur of kind, but whatever this large creature is. He says, I made that and you, puny man. I made this large animal and see his strength in his loins and his power and the muscles of his belly. And he bends his tail like a cedar. His bones, verse 18, are like tubes of bronze and his limbs are like bars of iron. I made this beast with great strength and I made this puny little guy, Job. And I put you side by side. I'm God. And then he goes on and demonstrates the marvelous power of God. Remember, all of this comes because Job in his own personal suffering has asked the question, is God fair? Has God forgotten me? Has God overlooked me? I love about the book of Job is God never tells Job what was going on. He tells us. Certainly Job knows now because he's in heaven, can look at the scriptures and see, but certainly then he did not know and God didn't have to answer it. Didn't have to tell him. Why? Because he's creator. And he's all-powerful. And he's just in all of his dealings. And he operates in an infinite wisdom, an infinite power, an infinite justice. And he is never unrighteous. He is never ungodly. To be ungodly would be to violate himself and go against himself. And he would no longer be God. He's perfectly just righteous and holy in all of his dealings. So the very question, is God fair, is the wrong question. Because we know he is fair because he is creator. Back to Romans chapter 9. The question is this. Does not the creator have the right to be the creator? And the answer is emphatically yes. And even if we thought, no, he can't be, well then let's go answer four chapters worth of questions. Where were we when he created the heavens and the earth? As soon as somebody can create something out of nothing and create their own world, their own solar system and everything else, then we'll let that guy go talk to God and ask these questions. Certainly none of us. God is just. And here's fundamentally where our struggle is. We don't want to acknowledge that we are created. That we are the creation. That we have to come under the creator. Heart of man is filled with pride. Calls out God and demands God to live by our justice system. That's just simply not the place we are. We are the creation. We are the lump of clay. We are the vessels he makes, some for honorable, some for common use. We are under the sovereign hand of God who is directing, and he is just in all of his dealings. What I love about this, as Paul lays it out, though it is stark when we run into it. It is a challenge to us. It's a good reminder of our own limitations. 
And I love particularly as Paul reasoned through the scriptures, he wasn't injecting his own imaginations. He wasn't injecting his own logic and reasoning. He was just reasoning according to the principles that God laid out. Certainly, he didn't just quote the scripture. He was reasoning according to the scripture and explaining. So when we head oftentimes, then, what is our struggle when we're coming against these major theological issues, these seemingly con- seeming contradictions? Well, we just simply believe his word and reason, reason according to the scriptures. And we know this for certain. None of us are in a place where we could call God into question and challenge his justice and fairness. I know many would rather just ignore the doctrine, move on, or condemn God. But here God answers plainly, I'm God. I'm the potter. I move and direct and create as I see fit, and I accomplish my good purposes, and no one can question that. Indeed. So we'll continue on next week. We'll pick up on then verse 21 through verse 24 and see the next expression, the proof of Paul here in regards to the work of, of God. We'll see that God is motivated by his glory. Why does he do what he's doing? Because he is motivated by his glory. And then finally, we will see as a proof that we shouldn't be surprised by his dealings here because he has been telling us this from his prophets from the beginning. The Old Testament testifies to these things. We shouldn't be shocked when we see it happening because God has regularly stated this same thing over and over again. This is what I think is important for us when we head into thinking about this. We're going to have difficult conversations all the time, difficult theological conversations. The first thing we must do is to bring our thoughts and reasoning under the Scriptures. When we want to jump beyond it, when we're tempted to go further, say, no, it is always under the authority of the Scriptures. Second of all, we want to rely on the Scriptures when explaining it. I understand you may not like this doctrine. I personally do not like the implication of the doctrine. But this is what God has said and is right. And if God says that he is the creator and he's the sovereign one and he chooses and he elects, and we say, well, how can he judge? Look, I don't even know how he created the heavens and the earth and hang it on nothing. I haven't figured that out yet, let alone his justice system. And again, just read through Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. Answer all those questions. When we can answer those questions, then we will go judge God on his moral justice. Till then, we believe what he has said, that he is sovereign and gets to move. But it's also important for us as we reason and as we think through these divine mysteries, these marvelous doctrinal truths, what happens to our hearts when God gives us an answer we don't like? We've got one of two choices. Well, it, nowadays, three choices. One people, people just blame us, well, that's your interpretation. So that's argument one is, well, no one can know anything. Argument two is, no, that's not what God has said, and they go somewhere else. Or the proper response, humbly come before our God. Isaiah 66, 2, for this one I look, 
for him who is humble and contrite and trembles before my word. That should be our response to coming to these grand things. When God unfolds them for us, we come under his word and humble ourselves. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these profoundly rich truths. Thank you for the way it ministers to our own heart. Indeed, we're reminded when we come up to such magnificent texts how small we are, how insignificant we are, and yet we marvel at it because you would rescue sinners and save us. We who are insignificant and so small, you have raised up and placed over your creation and ultimately in Christ we're redeemed and we are then even made higher than the angels because we are in Christ. We cannot comprehend the, the riches of your grace and mercy which you have lavished upon us and we are only at times getting small tastes of that. May we train our own hearts to trust your truth and trust your word and work diligently to rightly understand it, following the examples of those faithful apostles and prophets who went before us, so that in all things we would be comforted by your truth and protected by your marvelous work. And when we come to these doctrines, indeed, we rejoice that the doctrine of sovereignty not only gives us great security in our salvation, but great comfort. For we do know our limitations. And we, if it was up to us, there are many things that we would write out. We would not allow suffering. We would not allow difficulties. We would not allow anything to come upon us that would rob us of our own personal pleasure and joy. And yet you allow these things to come so that we would hold on to the greater things that we would see you in your glory. So we pray, Father, as we continue to diligently study your word, may we be the kind of students who humbly come under it so that we would be protected by this truth in all seasons. Thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.